0: Your first kind of foundational layer for analytics is to be able to answer what happened yesterday really, really well.
1: Hi, folks. You are listening in to HashMap on Tap today. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Koleffel and really pleased to be joined today by Eric Jones. Eric leads the BI and analytics organization at Hyperscience. They are enabling organizations to automate data-centric, mission-critical processes. They use both human intelligence and AI, and they're continuing to take full advantage of a modern data stack that includes things like Snowflake, Fivetran, and DBT. Eric, welcome to the show. What are you drinking this afternoon?
0: Thank you so much. I've got my Yeti cup to keep my Breakside Hazy IPA nice and cold. I like it. Is
1: Now, is Breakside Hazy, is that a go-to for you? Is that a typical it IPA? It absolutely okay. is.
0: Breakside is. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and Breakside is a well-known Portland brewery that specializes in IPA, and their, their hazy is one of my favorite. Oh, I like it. Is that your
1: favorite style of beer as well, IPA? It is. Yep, very yeah, much so. Very nice. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I do prefer the IPA style. I, I may have mentioned before we started the show, my, my wife jumped out a couple of days ago and got a Got a new selection. I've got a Lagunitas Stereo Hopic IPA, which actually I've not had before, so I'm looking forward to trying this one throughout the show. And cheers to uh, discussing some data together. This is going to be fun. <laughs> absolutely. Well, like I said, welcome in. Why don't you? Why don't we do this? Take a couple of seconds. Talk about your background specifically, and I'm always interested in how people got into technology altogether. So be interested to hear that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the analytics space my entire career. I've worked across CPG, biotech, footwear and apparel industries. For the last four and a half years now, I've been in the software and technology industry. And I think my first intro to it was really at Nike. I started off in their global consumer knowledge group, which was basically a small tech company inside of Nike because we're following stuff like user behavior on their app, and user behavior on Nike.com, and just really for the first time realized how much potential and how much data there is to be able to analyze from stuff like clickstream events and, and user behavior and user purchases on, on some form of application. And so, really fell in love with the possibilities of what analytics can do, had the opportunity to, to build out my own analytics team. A couple of years ago at Zoom Info, which was the first time I got to really build something from scratch. And then fast forward to now, and I'm doing the same thing at Hyperscience.
1: What well, I'm curious, how you mentioned a small team at Nike. How big was the team at Nike that, that you were focused on then?
0: Yeah, small is relative in Nike terms. Um, so that's what, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we had, when I started, we had around 50 people across the umbrella organization we were in. So my team, or uh, the team I was on, the data science team was about 10 building out like their product recommender doing ab testing on all their digital platforms and uh, we had consumer research we had data engineering so all together is about 50 um, which in nike terms is a is a small team
1: yeah yeah it, it, you're right it is all relative you you also mentioned zoom info too so you went from that that consumer brand one of the obviously world Wide-known brands, you go to ZoomInfo, which I think those of us in tech everyone knows and, and uses uh, quite frequently. And it sounds like you hit them at another pretty high-growth time as well.
0: I hit them before they were ZoomInfo, um, so oh, they, really? yeah, they have. It was DiscoverOrg for those um, who probably used DiscoverOrg yeah. before ZoomInfo. So their headquarters is in Vancouver, Washington, just across the river from uh, from Portland, Oregon. So I started when Discover.org had about 300 people in February 2018. And then a year later, Discover.org had already acquired Rain King, which was a competitor in the sales intelligence space. A year after I started was when Discover.org acquired ZoomInfo, and it has become... A very large organization, much bigger now today than it was when I was there. Uh, but yeah, I was—I was one of the first. I was the pre-Zoom info analytics side over there at Discover large. Yeah, definitely
1: pervasive across the, <laughs> yeah. the sales community for sure. How? So, what caught your attention about hyperscience?
0: Um, a couple things. Um, one is I—I I absolutely love building stuff from scratch in the analytics space, in particular you can incur a significant amount of of tech debt, of processes that have not been optimized because they were dependent on legacy systems that were created 10, 15, 20 years ago. Hyperscience doesn't, or when I started, didn't really have anything in place for analytics. They were looking for someone to build it out from the ground up, both the team and the capabilities. And I think that was what initially drew me was this idea that I can build something out the way that it should be built out from the beginning so that we can minimize tech debt, we can maximize the value of BI going forward. And part of their job description was they said they were rolling out a Looker instance. And I was fortunate enough to, to roll out Looker at Zoom info, well aware of the possibilities that exist with Looker. And so really their their at least the one tech tool that they had, the one analytics tool they had in place, was something that I really enjoyed working with. So I figured, if they've got Looker, then they're they're open to to building stuff outright.
1: Yeah, no, we're we're fans of Looker as well. In fact, we've got we've got uh, all of our cloud cost monitoring those uh, reports or analytics, if you will, come through Slack. But those are Looker reports and Looker analytics that are developed there. Very very cool. So and I'd mentioned. I'd mentioned a couple of the other technologies that you guys are, are diving into right now. Maybe give the audience a sense for what is going over, on overall at Hyperscience, just from a, a data cloud platform perspective. Have you guys been transitioning? Did you start out and just go go modern data stack right out of the gate? What's been Yeah, happening? that was
0: the cool thing about building something from scratch is it's been modern data stack from the beginning. Uh, we had a small Postgres SQL instance that had some of our initial um, source data like Salesforce that was syncing through Fivetran. And that was where the proof of concept for Looker was built out on. Um, But luckily, you know, I've had a really supportive team and a supportive company that says build this out the way that it should be built out. And so I've been able to come in and in less than three months, stand up our data warehouse, transition all of our stuff that was in Postgres over to Snowflake, um, stand up. I think we've got, Ten to 12, ten or twelve different pipelines now that that uh, you guys at Hashmap helped me build out some of them. Um, so there wasn't really much uh, transition that needed to happen. It was really just standing stuff up from from scratch.
1: Yeah. I mean, back in the day, you couldn't even get a, a final design done and get everybody in the in the organization to agree on, on what you're going to do hardware, software-wise, and you've got everything rolling in, in 30 days. What about, what were you focused on? Maybe take me through some of those initial use cases that you said, hey, this is going to create a really nice effect, going to have a, you know, kind of that executive wow factor, if you will, if we we can yeah get there's one
0: more. surprising one which I'll get to in a second but the first one as it typically is was centered around uh, sales operations and finance so this is um, helping to helping to automate our financial reporting so our ARR numbers um, our churn numbers cohort analysis on you know when customers started what their start date was what their growth looks like over time. And we're getting into, now this is all based off of Salesforce data, we're getting into capacity planning, quota planning, incentive compensation. So that was really the first use use case that we had where there was one, a lot of kind of descriptive analytics had existed before. So there is some level of data literacy around that information and how it can be used. Um, Just a lot of manual processes that we can come in and, and automate and then once we have the processes automated, not only are we saving human time or person time, they don't have to figure out how to get data from one point to another, manage stuff in Excel, then we can take, take those descriptive statistics that existed before and really go to the next level and start to develop game plans or, or procedures around what you should do if you see this in your data. So that was the, that was the primary one. i say the surprising one is really our HR group. They have done a lot of stuff in terms of applicant funnel, headcount optimization, headcount planning. They would manage all this stuff through some combination of the source applications they were using and Google Sheets and Excel Sheets and tribal knowledge. Um, and they've been they've been really supportive as a group coming together and helping build out some of the pipelines that we need to, again, not only automate the stuff, but be able to get a level of insight into our largest cost, which is headcount um, that they haven't had before. Yeah.
1: What, when you were looking at this initial sales ops and some of the other opportunities that you, you went after, what, what, Dimension stood out to you the most. You said, "I've got to hit that. I've I've got to ensure that whatever we do when we're building these net new data products, it sounds like you had a greenfield opportunity here. You know, I've got to achieve. You know, I've got to make things simpler. I've got to I've got to get to that data product faster, which sounds like you did in three months. I, you know, I got to make this sustainable, or I don't have this massive team that's always looking over it. it needs to be self serve. What was most? Im- Are there two or three things that were most important to you as you uh, were really building out those first few data products on this? Yeah, great app? question.
0: One, uh, self-serve for sure. Um, it has always been a challenge to create something that the analytics team considers self-serve as do whatever end users we want to have them self-serve. Because I've, I've worked in groups in the past where self-serve means, well, that means the analytics team can serve yourself easier and still we still become a roadblock. Um, so that was the first thing yeah. is how do I build out whether the product is a dashboard or a report, or in the case of our sales ops stuff, a data model or infrastructure, how do I build something out so that not only does the analytics team use it, but the end users also use it? So this this idea of like, analytics as a, as really a, a product manager is really important to me because I wanted, I wanted that.
1: Who who are the end users that you're talking about here?
0: A, a revenue analytics manager. So he's developing a lot of the logic on top of the infrastructure we built out in Snowflake. And then on the HR side, it's both our people ops team so that they can understand what okay. candidate experience looks like when going through the applicant funnel, but it's also functional leads and hiring managers because they have, They have a report now that we uh, review with our hiring managers every other week and sometimes every week about here's the number of openings you have on the HR side. It's kind of everybody, people ops and anyone who touches the hiring process.
1: So how did you what you just described? I think this is what everyone is after. I've got this. You know, this notion of self-serve for my analytics and engineering team and that's fantastic but i'm balancing that against getting this self-serve aspect for my actual data consumers the folks that are in the business trying to make decisions that are being served by my analytics and engineering teams how did you how did you do that how did you how did you achieve both of those and my my guess is and not meaning to try to prompt you here but Probably wasn't only tech. Maybe there's a little process or some people changes. What did it take to get there? Because I think
0: everybody's interested in that. It takes a lot of doing it wrong (laughs) to be able to get something (laughs) right. So I've done it wrong in a lot of other companies um, to where dashboards we built or products that we built don't get used. So what we've done differently at HyperScience is one, have a focus on data literacy first do folks have a good understanding of the data and nuances of the data that we're dealing with? Are there aligned upon and standard definitions that we can create so that when we use a term in a meeting with one group of stakeholders, it means the same thing as a meeting with another one. So really the first step is establishing that sort of fundamental data literacy about what we're actually looking at. And then the second step is to kind of separate what is useful for an analytics group, what's useful for an engineering group is at a different level of abstraction than what's useful for an end consumer. So we go into, I spent the first month or so going through requirements gathering, not on the data infrastructure side, but just understanding from a non-technical end user, what what questions are you trying to answer? And had that drive what we developed from an infrastructure side. So the, the goal is to have something that's usable for the end user, but also scalable and robust on the, the more technical analytic side.
1: Oh, I love that. That that usability to me is so critical. You've got the scalability you talked about. What about did did you have to do any anything special to develop trust on, especially on the data consumer side? Was there anything there where they go, okay? This thing Eric's telling me about, it sounds really good. I think it should work, but did it, was that trust there immediately that when I see a number, when I've got a KPI, when I've got a or an analytic, it's good to go? Or did it take some time to build that trust up?
0: Takes time to build it up. What we typically do is start small. So if you have an existing report from an application that you're using, I'll recreate that report in Snowflake or through the logic that I have. If I can then show you that here's the report you're used to using, here's the same numbers that we have derived from our data warehouse, that starts to build that credibility with, okay, the data's right, at least the data's right. And then I think trust is built iteratively. It's not an all or nothing, it's kind of on a scale. And so, really, recreating the report is step one that, you know, recreating a report that already exists. Step two is to then take it a step further to, deepen the level of analytics that are available, and then share it back, get feedback on that. So if it's a a report from our application funnel, I can do stuff like offer acceptance rate, which wasn't in the initial report, but you can believe the input data that goes into the calculation. Had a few iterations on what the definition should be. How do you define the time period for offer acceptance rate? But that's how we build up kind of the credibility over time was just developing iteratively in, you know, in conjunction with our stakeholders. Oh, that's great. And, you know, the, as you work
1: towards that, you know, higher and higher levels of data quality, I think you build that trust up. How, talk to me a little bit about data quality is always a challenge, but, but talk to me first about. Data acquisition, I know you alluded to a while ago, you got a lot of different sources. How, first of all, how would you rate your data acquisition complexity, say on a scale of, of one to 10, 10 being more complex? And what does that data acquisition landscape look like today for hyperscience?
0: Luckily, ours is relatively straightforward. So I'd give it a seven or a, like a two or a three in terms of complexity. Most of the stuff that we use are from pretty well known applications. So we have Fivetran integrations that are native to Fivetran, so we can set it up quickly. Other apps that we use are luckily big enough that they have their own API that we can pull data out of. Um, I'd say the most complex pipeline that we have that we're still in the process of trying to stand up. Is our Clickstream or product analytics pipeline? Oh. So we're trying to, we're trying to understand what our users are doing in our platform. We don't have a really good idea of that today. Uh, because it's because Clickstream is built on top of our proprietary database and proprietary platform. And a lot of our customers host hyperscience on-prem today, it's not lending itself to an easy SaaS solution like you could for a cloud-based platform. So that's probably the most complicated pipeline we have.
1: Okay. It sounds like there's a there's a bit of a just a technology challenge in terms of how the current solution is done today and being able to, especially, and you guys have a lot of customers, uh, I would assume, uh, just having to, each one of those customers is a little bit different, maybe in yeah. terms of how they, yeah, okay. Yep. I could see where that would, uh, that would be a challenge. Anything you, you mentioned, uh, FiveTran And I, I talked about a couple of other technologies, just the overall data stack, as you look at data acquisition and transformation, data quality, any, any product solutions, technologies that you, either you guys are using or got your eye on out there that stand out to you in the space.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been a five and snowflake user for the last three and a half years, four years now. Um, we brought that that was the tech stack that we brought into Zoom info. So I can't I can't speak highly enough of those three. The ones that we have, the ones that I've personally never used before but are utilizing now, uh, we're in the process of rolling out DBT to manage transformations. Yep. DBT seems like it's an extremely powerful tool that solves a lot of pain points I've experienced personally as an analyst or a data engineering-ish type of person who's building data models for reporting or for analytics purposes. So DBT, definitely something to keep an eye on. Another one that we're utilizing not as heavily as we can right now, but we're in the process of building up is Uh Hightouch. They are a, for lack of a better phrase, reverse ETL tool, but we're, we currently sync a lot of stuff to Google sheets. That's QC for our source system administrators so that they can understand if there's data issues we're seeing in a warehouse, can we fix those in the source? And then we're also exploring Atlin, which I hadn't heard of until about two weeks ago, as a data discovery and data cataloging tool, and uh, Monte Carlo as an analytics observability tool as well. Oh, very nice. Very nice.
1: Yeah, we had uh, Tejas uh, Manohar on the show. The co-founder of HighTouch a while back. Are you are you connecting HighTouch right now to your Snowflake cloud data platform? Okay, yeah. cool. And then moving data out of Snowflake or connecting up Snowflake to more, put some of your operational systems in a more ac- actionable state. Which of the operational systems did you say you were going back to, Eric?
0: Right, right now it's Google Sheets and Gainsight. Um, okay. In the future, it will probably also include Salesforce and Marketo.
1: You know, I just I was talking to somebody earlier today, and and the question came up about how many organizations number one are are really activating that information that's in their cloud data platform, similar to what you're doing with High Touch, and secondly, how many organizations are using that information to build new data applications off of? And I, I see that as another trend, even maybe beyond just those individual bits of information. How can I literally build net new applications off this great? rich data that I've got in in your instance in Snowflake.
0: Absolutely. At a previous company, we were in the process of transitioning to more of a product led growth framework. So a very sales led organization to more to one that's more product led. Um, and we had that exact use case where we've got we can run a set of logic on top of data we have in our warehouse. And the output from that logic would identify audiences for targeted communications. And without a tool like high touch or a census or a reverse ETL tool, we had to like string together four different processes to just get the output of of SQL logic to intercom is what we use for our email and um, targeted communication system. And so without those tools, you're introducing four different potential points of failure just to get an audience to the tool that sends emails in an automated fashion. And so high touch has been extremely helpful in being able to not just automate, but like you said, operationalize some of the analytics and some of the models that we have for our marketing colleagues or for our sales or CX colleagues to be able to take action on top of. Yeah, that's a great story. How do you
1: internally at Hyperscience and maybe you did it completely different, uh, differently when you were at Nike or uh, Discover.org, Zoom Info, but how do you look at this build versus buy? You've got this opportunity. You talked about you love to build things. Where do, where do you draw the line and say, hey, I'm going to, yeah, I don't, I'm, I don't think I'm going to do a custom Python script here. Let me go to a high touch and take something off the shelf that maybe I can configure or
0: customize. Where,
1: where do you, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, another great question. Hyperscience was easy because the team is me, so it's a team of one. And, <laughs> and I'm in, in no means a data engineer in someone who can write their own API scripts or someone who lives in Python all day. So the the Hyperscience decision was, I've got a set of questions that I need to solve. What's the fastest way for me to be able to, to answer some of those questions? And more importantly, what's the fastest way for me to be able to show and demonstrate the value of analytics in general? So I think speed and time to value is definitely something to consider for buy versus build. Typically, building in-house will take longer. You have more ability to customize and more ability to, to build out exactly what you want. But when when time to value and when speed is something that's a parameter you're trying to solve for, then definitely buying is an option. And I think there's the tools that we use each of them solve an individual piece of the tech stack, right? We have Fivetran yeah. for extraction and load, DBT for transformation, Snowflake for warehousing, Looker for BI and visualization tools. There are other stuff that can, you can do everything all in one tool. Mm-hmm. What I found is those tools do all the things kind of well, but none of the things really well. And, if I can purchase a tool that does the one thing I need it to do very well, there's no point in trying to hire someone or trying to build it yourself. I think it's, it's, that problem's already been solved. I'd rather have the team, the resources that we have that are very expensive resources for data engineering and for analysts focus more of their time on building something that's net new, not something that um, has already existed or that a software can solve for us.
1: Yeah, no, I I love that philosophy, uh, very much. I think that that is definitely the way to go. And and every day it seems like there's something else coming out. And that kind of goes to my next question. When you look at, you know, a census, a high touch, a Monte Carlo, castor, some of the solutions that are out there that are, uh, most of these now I guess are at least Series B. It seems like there's a lot of money flowing in. When you do pick one of these solutions, what goes into it? You look at the you look at the at the tech side you look at at what they've done but how much of it goes into where are they in the life cycle of the company and you know the investors that they have behind them and and the the runway that they have to kind of prove things out and and how closely they've they've really hit that true market fit that aha moment to go oh yeah we we know we're in the right space how, how how do you think about those different dimensions as you're selecting again snowflake today we know, you know, very well established, five trans been established for a while as well. Some, some might consider it a little bit newer, but you know, some of the other technologies really, really interesting. But I think, you know, maybe if you look at an enterprise, you know, go back to Nike, for instance, when you were there, would Nike have picked up a series B company and said, Hey, let's go. This looks interesting. How, how do you, Kind of compare and contrast maybe your Nike experience with where you are today at Hyperscience with picking up those kind of products.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, a, I've, I haven't thought of it in that framework, but that's a great framework to think about it. I think the, which is also what drew me to Hyperscience is the, we're a relatively smaller company than Nike. Um, and zoom in for Discover Org was at the time. And um, I was also at New Relic in between those two, which is also smaller than Nike. The, when you enter a company as they're just starting to build out their capabilities i think there's more of a flexibility that you have to to try a smaller startup or try like oh. high touch when when i first started talking to them they hadn't yet raised their series a or series b at a larger more established company at nike that's seen as a risk i think at a smaller company like hyperscience that's seen as a benefit because you can get you can get into a company, probably negotiate a better deal as they're smaller, and then you get the full benefit of them growing and continuing to build out what their product is. When I was at ZoomInfo or when I was at Discover, DiscoverOrg, we brought in 5Tran right as they signed their Series A. So we yeah. were even on their old pricing model, uh, but it allowed us to really... Have a dedicated account executive. How to have a dedicated CSM, someone who worked with us and met our need, and then we get to benefit along with their growth as they continue to grow. So that that idea of product market fit is very important. Is that do the do the the teams that I'm interacting with, from a salesperson to a technical solutions engineer, do they understand the problem that we're trying to solve? If you try to sell me a solution that Touches on the problem that I have, but then you show me all the other things it can do. I get less interested because that that solution or that team doesn't really understand what I'm trying to solve with that particular problem. Um, so I think product market fit is very important.
1: Yeah, those those are great points, and I think even if you're in a smaller organization, much smaller than Nike, at like you said, Zoom Info or here at Hyperscience, you can get that extra attention, that that extra care even as a smaller organization, as some of these newer companies are, are just starting out really looking to get that, you know, let's, let's continue to tweak. And, and we need that constant feedback. Let's get everybody on Slack and and keep rolling. I think To me, sometimes maybe today, even at larger enterprises because of the pricing models maybe that we have with some of these SaaS-based solutions, it becomes a little bit easier. I know there's still more, there's probably more stringent uh, requirements and guardrails around bringing new products in, but as opposed to having to say, hey... I'm going to go select high touch. I've got a three-year commitment at, you know, depreciate this huge thing over this long period of time. I don't have to do that anymore, right? I could pick up, uh, some, some credits. I can use it on a consumption-based as needed, uh, type fashion. And, and, uh, I, I don't have that, that, that commitment level that financially, at least that, that, you used to in the past, and it, it just makes it a little bit easier, I think, even for larger organizations. Hopefully, to to bring in some of these products and like like you've been doing, test them out, see if they're really working, and continue on. And and again, uh, with the beauty of these cloud services, I can plug and play as needed. So, no, that's great, great, uh, great, great feedback, great information about how you guys are doing that.
0: And I think that's another key point is, and uh, DBT Labs is a great example of this. Uh-huh. Um, I like to look at what integrations or partnerships do mm. these other companies have with one another so i was following dbt labs when they were called fishtown analytics before yeah. they were DB, like when they were a consulting firm yeah. um, and following them over time to see how yeah. well, they've got these cool packages they're building out on top of fivetran managed schemas which allows me to have a data model set in two lines of code because they have a partnership and an integration with Fivetran. Looker's got looker blocks that are built on top of five trend managed schemas. So one of the, one of the other important factors is, you know, what, what alliances and what partnerships do these companies have with one another. if it's with other companies that I have used or other vendors that I've used even better.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hey, you mentioned uh, Monte Carlo, actually, uh, Bar Moses was on the show as well. You mentioned a lot of the, a lot of the companies we've had on really, really interesting technology, this, one of the things that we talked about was she and her team have been building out almost this new category, this data observability, data reliability, uh, kind of staying away from you know some of the the typical buzzwords that we hear. That's that's a big challenge. What are you seeing? So I'm just interested. What are you seeing so far with Monte Carlo? Is it is it pretty early days right now, or are you seeing some value so far around getting that usable, trusted uh, data that you're after?
0: Yeah, pretty early days. Um, we're still in exploratory phase, I can say. Coming from New Relic, observability—I understand observability. Okay,
1: can, can you define? Can you de- give us your definition of that? Because I think for a lot of folks, it is a—it's a relatively new term in terms of how we're thinking it of it today within the data context. What? What? How would you define it, Eric?
0: Yeah, a really short way to define it is is uh, data pipeline performance management. So what we the problem that we're trying to solve and this is more proactive at hyperscience cuz we haven't run into it, but I'll describe a problem that I that I've run into at many companies before. You have a dashboard that the analytics team has built and the dashboard is being used by senior level executives. So we've got one at my previous company that was used by our chief growth officer. And he's got a meeting every Monday with uh, our CEO and he goes over the weekly metrics and New Relic had also switched to consumption-based pricing. So we have our self-serve business dashboard that's reviewed every Monday. The meeting's at 8.30 Monday morning. So our chief growth officer reviews data over the weekend to create the narrative that he wants to have for the Monday morning meeting. And what happened, I think it was like five weeks in a row, (laughs) is that... uh, Someone would get a Slack Sunday afternoon, hey, the the dashboard's broken, or it hasn't been updated since we reviewed it on Thursday, or you've got a tile that says no query results are being returned. So now you have a Sunday afternoon, Sunday night scramble to figure out what's wrong, Um, that you can hopefully solve for Monday before the meeting with the CEO. And if it's not solved by Monday, then you have the chief growth officer saying, well, I can't review the dashboard today because we don't trust the data in it. When that happens repeatedly or consistently, not only do you have a bad data product, but you start to lose credibility in the analytics that you've built. And so what observability can help with is understanding or diagnosing where the like where the dashboard is breaking, what data set or what table or what view is causing, has been an error or has caused the dashboard to break. And then even going back, what job that was scheduled to run either didn't run or didn't complete. So you can identify where in the pipeline something's going wrong. And then Monte Carlo is great in that you have an alerting feature where if something is broken, in one of your pipeline and one of your jobs that you run, you get an alert as the data team, whether it's on Slack or email or whatever way you choose to say something's wrong with this data pipeline so that you're the first person to identify it instead of your stakeholders being the first person. There's also anomaly detection uh, that can set off an alert to where if if your pipeline sends you a hundred rows every day and then one day it spikes to a thousand, you know, something's going on either with the source system or the pipeline. So, it's this alerting feature and alerting functionality that allows you to observe the health of your pipelines. You can be the first one to know when something's wrong. So, you can proactively try to fix it. And then there's stuff like data lineage where you can see if this table, if table A is broken, what are the other tables that feed into it? Or what are the other tables that depend on table A to see what else might be broken or stale? in addition to a really nice function of if if table a if there's an issue with table a what are all of the dashboards that rely on table a so that you can identify all dashboard owners and all dashboard users that something might be wrong so just it's a it's a long way of saying observability is a way for me to feel confident in our data pipelines and the health of our data pipelines and being able to diagnose what is wrong with them if something is wrong
1: Oh, that's a great explanation. Very great examples. I think so often we've we've thought about you know addressing data quality and data issues at the acquisition point itself only, and then assume okay everything's gonna be great, and inevitably, like you said, something something will go wrong. Um, so having that view that visibility into everything, the entire pipeline, as you as you very, very well said is, is just uh, is incredible. Definitely want to keep in touch on on how that's going with you guys too. Absolutely. What about I mean, not to not to shift gears too much, but maybe let's talk about people for a little while. If you when you when you in hyperscience as a, as a technology company, doing really interesting things. Is there is there something that the company in general looks for, let's say in a software engineer? I know you have a small data engineering team, but kind of like the when you're when the company's hiring engineers, are there certain aspects, certain traits, certain things that you look for that you go that would make an ideal hyperscience engineer?
0: Yeah, I'll speak as best I can to the software side and then I can go into more depth mm-hmm. on the analytics engineering side, but our, as you mentioned at the beginning, our, our platform is, uh, depends, like our, our intellectual property is, is machine learning and AI algorithms. So someone who has a huge amount of strength in computer science or a background in image recognition in particular is important for hyper science because what we're essentially doing is taking taking documents that have been handwritten or filled in and making them computer readable. So uh I had a walkthrough of the product on my first day and it was just amazing that you can the demo that we give our customers is to give them one of their give them one of their sheets that's usually filled out by hand. So it could be a mortgage application or a checking account application. Someone will fill it out in their own handwriting, we'll put it through our application and they can see the result of the image of the actual the image of the actual document they have, and then what it translates to uh-huh. in hyperscience. So it's really cool technology. So we look for st- we look for engineers who, who have natural language processing or image recognition or some of the uh-huh. deeper AI um, and machine learning model uh, methodologies and experience in doing that kind of stuff from an analytics point of view. What I look for, and I like calling them analytics engineers. What I look for in an analytics uh-huh. engineer is someone who is able to translate a business problem to a technical solution. So I've worked with um, with data engineers in the past who don't have, or honestly, don't care to have a business context for what they're doing, uh-huh. and they can They have the technical side down. But in terms of the data products that are built, it's not the most useful for our end users or for the analytics team. So I really look for cool. someone who has a has an appreciation for and an understanding of the question we're trying to solve, because often that dictates what analytic products are built.
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. What about a little bit different? If you've got, you know, regardless of company size, you've got a number of organizations, many, many, almost everybody's looking at, you know, how can I take that next step? How can I continue this wave of modernizing my approach to data, my, you know, my people, my process, my technology, any, any advice that you can give after, you know, doing these kinds of things at very large organizations like Nike and smaller technology organizations as well, where you've had probably a lot more guardrails at, at Nike and a lot more freedom <laughs> to to really experiment in things at, at a place like hyperscience or Zoom Info, any advice you want to
0: share there? Yeah, there's actually, there's a commonality across all of them, regardless of company size, really a couple. Uh, One of them is your first kind of foundational layer for analytics is to be able to answer what happened yesterday really, really well. If you can answer what happened yesterday really, really well and allow others in your organization to answer what happened yesterday really, really well through self-serve stuff like we talked about before. Then you can spend more of your time trying to change what tomorrow is. I think there was a the head of analytics at GE or someone had a quote that says, I'm not really interested in how many sales we had yesterday. Although my manager is, all of our executives are, I'm interested in how do we increase sales tomorrow? But I can't increase, I can't spend my time increasing sales tomorrow unless I'm able to tell you with a high degree of certainty and a high degree of accuracy what happened yesterday. So I think that no matter the size of your organization, if you focus effort on solving the issue of answering what happened yesterday really, really well, you will set yourself up to be able to scale and affect tomorrow much better. And then my other piece of advice is automate yourself out of the job. When I was in biotech, I spent 90% of my time copying and pasting stuff from Excel sheets into PowerPoint or from um, the output we used, um, uh, SAS, the statistical programming language to do data transformation. So I, I had no idea about data warehousing and, and kind of automated automated dashboards and stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time just moving data around and mm-hmm. got frustrated that I couldn't actually do what I considered real analytics. And what I've learned is automating the stuff that you don't want to do. So automate yourself out of a job that you're in today so you can get the job you want tomorrow. And if Love that's it. kind of the mindset of your analytics group as well, that's how you continue pushing forward.
1: Well, great advice, two, two great pieces of advice. Excellent. Hey. How do you, as we're kind of driving this thing towards home here, how do you spend your, you're in the Portland area, how do you spend your time outside of work, whether it be at home or or outside?
0: Yeah, we, uh, so my wife and I were lucky enough to to buy a house last summer uh, that has a fantastic backyard. So we've spent the last year and a half planting, uh, doing landscaping, like my wife designs it and I'm the manual labor, but I like working with my hands. Um, So we love kind of hanging out outside, designing our outside space. And then we're lucky enough to be in Portland, Oregon. We've got a great beer scene, a great wine Mm -hmm. scene, a great food scene. So we will be wine tasting. And when it's available, going out to eat at all of the, (laughs) all the restaurants when it's safe to do so again.
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives, Guy Fieri on the on the Food <laughs> Network channel, and it's amazing how many times he makes a stop in the Portland area and finds an incredible spot that you yeah. just go, why are they not right around the corner from my house? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're,
0: oh, we're, we're lucky in Portland. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I grew up in Northern California. Uh, my wife grew up in Portland, and in the Bay Area, you have a lot of amenities, but There's so many people that want to do the same thing that it takes eight hours to get from San Francisco to like to Tahoe if you want to go ski, um, or it takes how three hours to get to an actual beach where it's warm. And in Portland, we're great because everything's an hour and a half: camping, skiing, the coast, wine country. Like we're kind of we're in this really nice kind of portion of the country where everything's Mm -hmm. an hour and a half away. We just love it. Yeah, you kind of
1: forget about that. Oregon has a vibrant wine scene. You've got you really it's it's everything that the Bay Area has for the most part, right? I mean, you're really not missing anything, and in a huge uh, group of of tech companies up in that area as well.
0: Yeah, and really cool. and and growing. Um, like I said, yeah. I was at New Relic, and New Relic has their primary headquarters in San Francisco, but the secondary yeah. headquarters is in Portland. And you know, with more and more companies going remote location is no longer kind of this boundary or no longer this constraint for you. So I'm lucky enough to be able to work for HyperScience that's headquartered in New York with another headquarters in Bulgaria. And I'm Mm -hmm. one of six people now that are on the West Coast that can, you know, they can do our jobs remotely and travel back when needed.
1: Love it. Love it. Hey, anything, Eric, that you would like the HashMap on Tap audience to know? We haven't maybe talked about today. It could be personal project or... You know, some media or something that you want to give some visibility to.
0: Yeah, I'll say, um, I'll, I'll give a personal anecdote. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that when when I left Nike mm-hmm. to go to Discover Org, so this was a 2018 time frame. I had probably written in total 20 or 30 lines of SQL. I had never heard of Snowflake or Five Train or any of the tools that we that we use Mm -hmm. currently at HyperScience. I knew that I wanted. I knew that I that I had an idea for how analytics can be done and how it should be done right. And DiscoverOrg allowed me to build out a team. And when I got there, uh, I realized in my interview when it was done. I realized it too late, but I should. They were asking me like, you know, how can you be successful or typical interview questions. And I realized I never asked them, like, what do you have in place for me to be successful? And oh. the answer would have been very little because there was no analytics infrastructure whatsoever. So I think that the point of the story is that in three years, I had gone from never heard, never hearing of a data warehouse or never knowing what it is to, to stand one up to being able to build out an infrastructure for a company where it hasn't existed before. Well, because I was curious in what's possible, and I think that's the that's the best piece of advice I can give anyone who's in a similar situation is continue to be curious. Curiosity led me to Snowflake. Curiosity led me to Five Chan. Curiosity led me to Looker. And if you're curious, you're going to learn whatever you don't already know. You're yeah. going to pursue it with a passion. So I just think like that if you're curious about something and passionate about something, I just happen to be passionate. About, I happen to be passionate about analytics. Just follow that passion, follow that curiosity, because it's it's I'm I am in no way today would I look back at myself three years ago and say that's where you're going to be in three years. Yeah. Yeah, it
1: is. uh, It will keep you from going stale. and, And in this space in particular, this data space, there is every you're right there every single day. You could take, um, you know, research. Look at something else. Dig into something. What are you doing? How are you doing it? The amount of change and the pace of that change is just absolutely incredible. So, no great advice. Stay curious, for all of us. Love it. What about um, last thing? Would you be able to do a quick lightning round? Just a few. E- These are easy questions. These are layup <laughs> questions. Uh, before we uh, before we end the show. Yeah, I love it. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Technology that you cannot live without in your role at Hyperscience. Snowflake. Oh, all right. Good one. What about uh, in the Portland area, You have a do you have a go-to cook-at-home meal or a takeout delivery meal that you enjoy?
0: Oh, um, we really enjoy, it's called Taste Bud. It's a wood-fired oh. pizza place that has great kind of Farm to table ingredient, so we love eating it. Taste, but have they been on diners, drive-ins and dives yet? Or, or to, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it's fantastic, I, though.
1: I, I am a wood fired uh, pizza fan. I, I try to do it <laughs> uh, on my own, but inevitably, it uh, it seems like they it, those kind of spots are just incredible. Sounds good. It sounds good. Whether it be uh, another place or or just uh, maybe an outdoor venue or something like that that you enjoy in the portland maybe it's your backyard you've been working on but a favorite spot in the portland area
0: we uh, so it's a little bit outside portland but my wife and i love going to lake trillium it has um in the winter you can snowshoe in the summer you can camp Um, Uh but we set up we have we have one spot that we like to get there early and set up because it's a beautiful lake and it's right at the base of of Mount Hood. So you have the, just this fantastic, beautiful view of water and Mount Hood right in front of you.
1: Oh, that sounds beautiful. What about, and maybe that's the answer. I don't know, but what, what do you do you know, on a daily basis or weekly basis, weekend, whatever it may be to unplug from the tech scene for a while? You know, we're always, you know, Slack this and Google apps that and <laughs> all that. What, anything you do to unplug?
0: Yeah. A couple things. Um, meditation and mindfulness is something that I uh, have been very purposeful about since covid started because it's a it's a um, it's a way not just to unplug but to kind of uh, develop a self-awareness that you wouldn't otherwise have without that kind of mental space to just uh, explore yourself and then I'm also I just joined it. About four months ago, I used to be a huge runner, but I haven't been keeping up with that. So I've, I've joined a, uh, a CrossFit gym, which will uh, kick my butt every day, uh, every day in the morning. But it's a great way to start the day. It's just. I'm here. I'm here to get my butt kicked. And uh, it just, it, that's my happy place is to well, be the nice, eating hard. <laughs> uh,
1: that sounds good. Well, the nice thing is if you're doing a lot of CrossFit, you can afford to eat a lot of those coal-fired pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, uh, we talked, actually, you talked about a lot of cool companies that, that not only are you watching, but you're actually leveraging their software right now. Any other companies that you're watching closely, you go, Hmm, that might be the next Monte Carlo or next high touch that I want to give a try.
0: I'd say I I mentioned it before, but I think, um, Atlin is one of them is that the, the idea that you can in, in essentially the same way as you Google search something, uncover or discover data assets that your company has or that your analytics team has built. That to me is, um, it's a problem that has not been solved by existing tools that I think Atlin has, at least from from what I've initially seen, has has made some great strides for. And then the other one I've yet to try this tool, but I'd love to try it sometime, um, is ThoughtSpot. Oh, uh-huh. So they again similar functionalities that the, you can you can take natural search language and and basically translate it to a SQL query. Um, and I think that really it's a it's a unique way to 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 put analytics in front of users in a way that they already naturally know how to use it. So if you can Google search, you can use something like ThoughtSpot um, to get an answer. I think that's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important. Is is don't change the way we do things personally. Let me, like you said work in the way that I'm familiar that we all all kind of know and love. And Eric, really appreciate you joining the show today. It was fantastic. A lot of great insights, a lot of great suggestions and advice too. Thanks so much for for coming in.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: You, you bet. You're welcome. And I, I really look forward to keeping up everything you guys are doing, uh, not only on the data and analytics teams at, at Hyperscience, but just the company in general. It sounds like some incredible technology. Uh, thanks to everybody that listened in today for HashMap on Tap. We appreciate everybody and would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. Visit us at HashMapInc.com. Send us any feedback or comments as always. We'd love to hear from you. We will see you soon on another episode. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to HashMap On Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the
1: podcast, please visit the HashMap On Tap page on HashMap's website.
0: We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.